to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Lily, I'm the digital assistant. And hi, I'm Lucy, I'm the managing editor at the London Magazine. The London Magazine is a bi-monthly publication. We publish poetry, fiction, essays, etc. And we're really excited today to introduce you to a writer from our latest issue, the super talented Nell Stevens. Nell writes memoir and fiction. She's the author of Bleaker House and Mrs. Gaskell and Me, which won the 2019 Somerset Maugham Award. She was shortlisted for the 2018 BBC National Short Story Award. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, Vogue, the Paris Review, the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, Granta and elsewhere. Nell is an assistant professor in creative writing at the University of Warwick. Briefly, A Delicious Life is her debut novel, which has just been published. And alongside this, she's very busy at the moment because she's also a judge on our short story prize for 2022. We have a super stellar lineup of judges. Alongside now, we also have Wendy Erskine, David Hayden and Nicole Flattery. Submissions are still open, so please do send us in your work. Details on how to enter can be found in our show notes. And not only that, but we've also recently published a short story of Nell's in our new June-July issue. The story is called Pulse, and we would now love to ask Nell to read a short section and tell us a bit about it. Sure. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I will read a little bit from Pulse, the short story. I'm trying to think what I need to tell you about it before I read. It's so that it's a story of somebody who goes to Warsaw in search of Chopin's heart, which is buried in the wall of a church in Warsaw. And they are a bit of a Chopin fanatic. And there are reasons why they're becoming hyper-focused on Chopin that the story explores. It's to do with imminent parenthood and being the non-pregnant partner when you're expecting a baby. But the bit I'm going to read is, is just about learning the piano, which is this, this narrator's passion. I'd been learning the piano at that point for 10 years. I started casually quite soon after we got fake married. I'd just turned 24 and you were still a graduate student writing your PhD on American road trip narratives. We lived in a top floor flat that got too hot in summer and I had a job as an assistant manager at a cafe inside a petrol station just outside of town. Every day I'd drive to work, leaving you at your desk at the window, and I'd come back to find you still there, head down. The post would be unopened on the doormat, the carpet flecked with molted fur from the elderly Siamese cat we inherited from your grandmother. I would kiss the top of your head and retreat into the bedroom to practice. I taught myself using online tutorials and, a, and an electric keyboard balanced on the ironing board. It was the kind that came with sound effects, cymbals, a drum beat. There was a button you could press to play the entirety of the Moonlight Sonata. I wore headphones so I didn't disturb you and practiced scales, shaky and unsure, C major, G major, D major, arpeggios. I tried stretching my fingers out to span an octave, then further. I wished my hands were bigger. It didn't feel important, but it didn't feel unimportant either. When you asked me why I wanted to play the piano, I was furious, full of spluttered indignation. Look at what you have, I wanted to say. You have all those American road trips to think about. Kerouac and Steinbeck and Route 66 and Thelma and Louise. Sometimes when I get home, you don't even look up from what you're writing. And what do I have? Car wash tokens and watery instant cappuccinos and bouquets of carnations wilting outside the kiosk and everything smelling of petrol, even things that are nothing to do with petrol, even me. 
what I actually said was something about a creative outlet. For my 25th birthday, you gave me an electric piano with weighted keys designed to respond to touch like real ivory. It had a sustain pedal that plugged in at the back. You asked to hear me play. I said I wasn't ready. So that's just the beginning of the piano bit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm sure that's going to give all of our short story writers so much inspiration. How do you feel about judging the competition? Are you excited to read the entries? I am very excited to read the entries. I think I've become, over the course of my, it feels a bit grand to say writing career, but the time I've spent writing, increasingly excited about short stories particularly. I think they can be a little bit neglected as a form. We think, when we, you know, if you think I want to be a writer, you tend to think I want to write a novel or maybe a memoir or, you know, a book length project and we sometimes treat the short story a little bit like practice runs, mm. like something else. I'll, I'll do a short story to practice just so I see whether I can write and then I'll write my novel. But actually, I think short stories are harder than novels. <laughs> you know, a novel, there's so much room to mess up and deviate and get lost and meander. Short story, there's nowhere to hide. So I've become more and more excited about the form and more and more excited about what we can do to to promote it and celebrate it so yes very excited to be part of this and you're a very versatile writer sticking with form you seem to move effortlessly from memoir to short fiction to now having your debut novel do you have advice for anyone who wants to transition between different forms and do you yourself find it as easy as you make it look thank you for saying I make it look easy I think I have a particular knack for making things look really hard but um I suppose it's interesting to hear you characterize the work like that because I've always thought of it all as part of the same project that Bleaker House my first book was published as a memoir but it was really just a sort of accident that it became a memoir I remember we were shilling it to publishers and we'd narrowed it down to the final two publishers and we went in and had these meetings with the editors and I was trying to decide who to go with. And during the middle of one of these meetings, I suddenly realised that the people at that publishing house had thought it was a novel and wanted to publish it as a novel. And so we were in this odd position of choosing between whether it was going to be a novel or a memoir. And that's just partly to do with the work, which is sort of slippery and in-betweeny and not really one thing or another and that's where I'm happiest really is in the in-between and so I wrote these two well they're published as memoirs two memoirs but I was never particularly wedded to truth or or accuracy I'm always more interested in playing around with those questions and now and now this novel which is is definitely fiction it's narrated by a ghost but um it's about real people it's about the 19th century author George Sand and Frederick Chopin you can tell a bit of a preoccupation of mine. So I still am kind of interested in those in-betweeny areas, the, the real life people popping up in fiction and the fiction that creeps into the way that we talk about our own lives. I mean, your work is super witty and playful and your new book, Briefly A Delicious Life, is a story of queer love and longing, horny ghosts and Chopin's music. Humour and playfulness can be quite difficult to incorporate into historical fiction. Was it quite daunting or did you have fun with it? Do you know, I, the humour and playfulness not daunting, the historical fiction daunting. Mm. <laughs> because for me, it's, it's actually harder to write 
without humor because I think life is funny <laughs> and and there's it's, there's a slight sort of I don't I don't want to say the kind of artificialness to, to stripping out humor from life and I think a certain kind of expectation that we have of a certain kind of historical fiction is that it isn't humorous <laughs> that the past is important and weighty and serious and we treat it like that and I really didn't want to write that novel because I, I, I do think life is funny and I think life has always been funny as well as tragic and awful and desperate and all those other things. Which is partly why I ended up with this ghost narrator who, she was born in the 15th, born and died in the 15th century. She's witnessing these events in the 19th century. But she's talking to us about them now. And so she's got a 20, 21st century voice. She's very contemporary in her concerns and her outlook. And that was my kind of, my cheat, my way out of writing a really weighty, serious historical novel was to, to use this teenage ghost to give it some breath and light and life. With your works haunted then by such a number of historical figures like Chopin and Mrs. Gaskell, do your writing interests reflect your reading interests? Would a piece of historical fiction immediately swing the Nell Stevens vote in our short story competition? Almost certainly not. <laughs> I the, the reason I tend to write about these figures is essentially because I'm just really moved by creative people, especially creative people who happen to know other creative people. I find that so compelling. But really it's the creativity that, that I'm excited by and not the genre I I tend to read my favorite I, w I wish I could write these books and I can't my favorite novels at the moment are those really dry American contemporary novels about like skinny women in New York that's <laughs> I can't I cannot read enough of them I love them I could never write that book because <laughs> it's just not who I am so you know what I like to read is is not necessarily what I'm writing exclusively and Mostly that's because of my limitations, but I like to be surprised. I want to be taken aback and, and astonished. Were you talking about my my year and rest of relaxation? Perfect example of yeah. the genre. <laughs> Cannot get enough of it. Skinny women in New York. Yeah. <laughs> you have previously been shortlisted for the National Short Story Award. Do you have any first-hand advice for people entering competitions and tips on how to write a story that stands out? Oh, it's so difficult <laughs> because I, I wish I, I wish I knew because if I knew I would win more competitions, you know, <laughs> I do think that it, it really depends on knowing the kind of writer that you are. I have writer friends who who can think of a, a commission or a, or a competition and write towards it, which I find astonishing that they, you can kind of drag something out of yourself on demand. And I'm not that kind of writer. I just have to wait helplessly for an idea to happen and then I can do it I think and this for me is still a work in progress it's important to learn to notice when you're forcing it and and that is it's a really difficult thing and I, I teach creative writing and I talk to my students about it a lot how do you tell when the difference between work, writing that's hard because you're doing something difficult and important and writing that's hard because you're forcing it and it's not what you're supposed to write and learning to tell the difference between those two things is so much part of what we're trying to do when we learn to write. Your short story Pulse is about someone on the cusp of parenthood who rather out of character decides to take a last minute trip to Poland to see Chopin's heart 
And your new book, Briefly, A Delicious Life, also tells the story of Chopin during uh, a part of his career. Can you tell us a bit more about what draws you to Chopin and and why you, you like writing about him so much? I'm just obsessed with his music. <laughs> and I'm not a massive kind of, I'm not hugely knowledgeable about classical music. And it's not something that I spend a huge amount of my time devoted to. But for me, there is something extraordinary that happens to my body when I listen to Chopin, which is that it's like drinking water when you're thirsty. It is that extreme release and quenching. And I find it staggering that that was written you know, two centuries ago and, and how, the, how the immediacy of music completely erases time. That to me is so bizarre and weird and, and kind of compelling. And I, f- I find it hard to, to not be obsessed by that, <laughs> to, to not want to think about it. Plus, it's an excuse for me to, to just listen to the music. which And play it also. I have a go. <laughs> I was just saying before we started recording that I did a, an interview on Radio 3, which was great, except they started a, a, one of the questions to me, as a pianist, would you say? And I, I let it go and I said okay I'll just <laughs> I just won't correct them but I'm a I'm a very keen and rather inept pianist you should claim it yeah. <laughs> I should own it why am I why am I confessing <laughs> <laughs> so what came first the short story or the novel pulse or briefly a delicious life was the short story a springboard into the novel it was exactly that mm. it was exactly that I had been in Warsaw seen this bizarre site where the heart is is kind of immersed in the wall been and and you know if you're in Warsaw you can't get away from Chopin it's it's everywhere and it's you know concerts in the park every Sunday and in every hotel lobby and in the airport it's really a kind of entire experience of Chopin just being in the city so so the the pulse story came first and in the course of of researching that and thinking about Chopin I I discovered this just it was almost an offhand comment in the book I'd been reading about a winter he spent in Mallorca with his then lover George Sand and I hadn't even known that they were a couple it's such an odd pairing and, and people either say yeah of course everyone knows that or they're also surprised like I was I didn't know they were a couple I think of them I was almost surprised that they were contemporaries they feel like they're from different periods to me but they were in a relationship for years and years and they they spent this odd winter in Mallorca where they went off to try and have a, a Mediterranean sunny warm winter to improve Chopin's health and ended up staying in this empty monastery on a hilltop and it was cold and windy and the locals hated them and Chopin nearly died and I knew that that was something I wanted to write about it was like with Nail and I but with my favorite 19th century people in it and that was all triggered by research I did for Pulse. Mm. And what inspired you to have the narrator as a really horny ghost? Where, where <laughs> did that idea come from? That was in part, as I, I think I mentioned, to do with trying to get out of writing a certain kind of historical novel. I knew I had the story which was essentially based on, on real events and I didn't want to just tell it straight to pun and not pun but um I was I was trying to find a way to to make it mine and give it my voice and and mean that I mean that quite literally in that 
I feel I taught myself to write when writing the first two books, which were memoirs. And part of that process was allowing my voice to be in the books and to be funny and casual and um, all the things that people naturally are when they talk. I learned to put that in the books and, and that was a huge part of my process and I didn't want to give that up. So I found a way to get a, a young woman's voice into the book and that voice ended up belonging to Blanca, the narrator, who is the ghost of a 14-year-old who is... yeah. Well, the word horny has really attached itself to this book <laughs> and I'm just going with it. She's a, she's a horny teenager and she falls in love with George Sand, who is in this monastery that she's been haunting for centuries. And that's the motor of the book, really, her her desire her ghostly horny desire for this 19th century author so although briefly a delicious life is due to be published i think by the time this podcast comes out um would you like to tell us a little bit about your what you're working on at the moment i will try i am notoriously awful at describing what i'm doing but um, the next book is about a forgery of a van gogh painting it starts based on quite a famous 19th century court case called the Tichborne case, or you might know it as the Tichborne claimant, which was a family who'd been looking for their long lost heir who was presumed drowned in a, uh, drowned at sea. And then this person turns up claiming to be this long lost heir, completely different looking, a different accent. He's been living in Australia most people think this is absolutely not the same person and yet his mother insists that it's him and so he is heir to this enormous fortune which sparks this this huge and very famous 19th century court case so I was kind of excited by that and my book steals a bit from that and we have this this heir or claimant turning up looking nothing like the real person with a Van Gogh painting in tow and the story follows that fake Van Gogh painting through three centuries. And will there be any horny ghosts in this one? <laughs> Whether or not we admit it, there will be, won't there? <laughs> <laughs> um, and now we would like to turn to the part of the podcast where we do our very best to help out a literary listener in need. So as I'm sure you know, writing and getting a break into publishing can seem really overwhelming and isolating so we wanted to reach out to our readers in the hopes of creating a little safe space to voice their literary dilemmas and ask for advice from someone who's been through it and has experience of getting their work out there so we're going to read a dilemma um, that's been sent in anonymously for you now and we'd love to ask you to offer some guidance i will do my very best and we're actually slightly concerned that this dilemma might be quite close to home for you because it does sound quite... Do you think I wrote in? Maybe yeah, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll read it out and we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay, I'm ready. So the dilemma is, I'm an assistant professor in a college. I get many creative ideas, writing poetry, drama, stories, etc. I've published many, but I'm unable to give justice to my creativity because of workload at workplace and home. So how do you juggle everything now? Well, we know it's not me because I've not written a poem in about 20 years, which is a favour to everybody. <laughs> but um, 
do you know I, I have this conversation so much so much <laughs> my wife's an academic I, I'm an academic therefore my colleagues are all academics I come from a family of academics it's it, it is um ridiculous really I should make different friends but um it's really really difficult but I think one thing that I think about when I'm grappling with it is what's the reason that we don't pack it in and go and do a different kind of job? And one of those reasons is that even though the workload can be punishing <laughs> and even though it seems to increase year on year, we do have so much freedom compared to different kinds of jobs where I would be expected to be at a desk at a certain time every day except when I've booked off holiday and that is just not my experience of, of working in academia there is breath there is the summer <laughs> um I now do admissions so the summer is, is less of a um a breath than it used to be but I do think that sometimes we we forget the breaths that we get in academia the terms are horrendous and intense, but there are moments in between them. Um, and I'm I'm just working on noticing those and taking advantage of it. I, I think it's really, really difficult. I do also think possibly that I get more done. I recently, I was a half-time um, academic. I, I took a full-time job last September. I think I probably get more done now I'm busier than I did before because I just don't have the luxury of staring at the blank page for very long. I've got a toddler, I've got <laughs> other commitments and it is just a question of being slightly cruel to yourself and just not allowing those moments of doubt and and wonder to, to disrupt the work too much. I don't know how that affects the work. It, it may be that that's kind of integral to the process. So in a way, I'm the worst person to ask because I'm grappling with all of this too. But um, this this podcast is going to come out at the after the end of term, I think, or just at the end of term. So hopefully, my overworked questioner, you will have a little bit of a breath over the summer. And I wonder, well, we're we're giving advice out. Do you have any tips for our short story competition entrants? I, I'm sure I do, <laughs> although I want to, I'd kind of begin with a slight caveat, which is the best short stories are the ones that surprise us. So anything that I would suggest is, is probably best ignored because if you're writing a story and you know what it is, then, then it will be the thing that is going to be regardless of whatever tips you hear on a podcast. But I was thinking recently about... Um, something George Saunders wrote about short story which is that it frames a moment of change and how useful that is to me in thinking about the short story form in that you know the scope of stories can be huge short stories we can cover decades if we want we have that freedom but what they accept at is actually identifying those those small moments that have huge huge resonance and huge impact so I think that's worth thinking about as you write. You know, wh wh what's the moment of change that I'm framing? And if you're not sure what it is, if there probably is one, but if, if you can identify it, then you can think of how you're framing it, what you're framing it with, and just make sure that the short story is, is doing its best to, to kind of showcase that change. Thank you so much, Nell. Thank you. That was brilliant. 
Um, where can our listeners find you? I have a website, which is nellstevens.com, and I am at nellstevens on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, those are probably the best places. Fab. So again, Nell will be judging our short story competition. So make sure you get your stories in. We're really, really excited to see what everyone comes up with. And don't forget, Nell's new book, Briefly, A Delicious Live, is out. And we would highly recommend giving it a read. It's perfect, yeah, for the summer. So definitely pick up a copy. And thank you so much for listening. We hope to be back again soon. Yeah. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag, and then on Facebook, we're just The London Magazine. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.